Good morning, church. Let's start this way this week. I, I want you to reach for your device, whatever device you brought with you this morning. If you didn't bring a device, I guarantee you somebody in your row has one. Look on at theirs. I, I, just, I just want you to hold it a little bit. Admire it. Look how shiny it is. How supple the corners are. What a remarkable device. Now turn it on. Wow, what a miracle of technology, right? Now, check to make sure the mute switch is enabled, okay? And if it's not, don't worry. I mean, if if it goes off during worship, uh, I want you to be okay. Just bring it forward. We'll answer it together. We'll we'll have a little conversation. Uh, I want to say a few things about this this morning, but before we do... I just want you to know, I'm not a technological luddite. I think this is an incredible thing. This probably will go down in history as the modern equivalent of the Gutenberg press. It has changed our world. It has changed the face of the developing world. It has changed the way we connect, the way that we talk. Psychologists will even say it has changed the way that we think. It has literally rewired our brains. So I want to acknowledge what an incredible thing this is. But I want to take you back for just a few minutes on on a journey to a different time. Uh, Our family grew up not too far from here on Central Parkway West, where the Wally's Diner is there at Central Parkway and Highway 10. We were just a few steps down the road from that. And in our little semi-detached bungalow, we had a phone, one phone. And we were lucky. I mean, most homes only had one phone. It was there in the kitchen. No buttons, a dial. I mean, how, how crazy was that? And it was, it was a color of green that will only make sense to people that lived through the 1970s, right? The, the 1970s is probably the greatest crime ever committed against fashion in the history of the world. So don't any of you young hipsters go bringing it back, not even ironically. But we had this crazy-looking green phone in the kitchen. And uh, from time to time, it would ring. Not that often. But the difference between our experience in the 1970s and our experience today is that if it rung and nobody answered, that was the end. Or if it rung, or if you tried to ring me and the line was busy, there was no way of getting through. There was no beep and then call waiting. There was no answering machine where you could leave the message. That meant the burden for communication rests squarely on your shoulders. You had to get in touch with me. And if you really wanted to, you could walk down the road and and actually knock on the door and say, how revolutionary was that? Fast forward four and a half or five decades to today. How many of you honestly keep a device like this within arm's length of your bed? Not honestly. And within the first five minutes of you opening your eyes, you've turned it on. And you've turned it on with the same nagging question. What did I miss? Well, I was asleep. What did I miss? What happened on Facebook? What messages came in on WhatsApp and Messenger and SMS and email and my other email and my still other email? And what that means 
is that there has been this dramatic shift so that the burden of communication no longer rests on you, but rests on me. Because it only took you a few little swipes of the thumb and your part is done. And before I know it, within the first five minutes of my day or yours, there could be 50 things there sitting us for us to do. And before we begin to handle what's most important to us in life, our day begins by responding to what's most important to others. Now, Again, I'm not a Luddite. I think this is a gift in many ways. But it's a gift that is a trap. And the trap is this. You can get caught up in the white water of frantic communication and pulled along by everybody else's priorities. And before you know it, the whole day is gone. And what you said was most important to you that has most necessary to be accomplished today never got done because your attention was taken in a hundred different Directions. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Yeah. So here is what I would like to do today. We're working our way through the parables. We're going to look at a couple today that have everything to do with priorities. On the way into service, you received a little white card like this. If you didn't receive one, just put up your hand. Our ushers will make sure that you get one. You'll need the card. Just keep your hands up. You'll also need a pen or a pencil. If you don't have a pen or a pencil, find the person in your row who has the biggest handbag. They, they'll have a bunch. Or actually, if you leave your hands up, we'll give you pencils as well. Okay? With a pen in hand and in a few moments of quiet reflection, I would like you to write down on this sheet of paper the three things in your life today that are of highest priority to you. The three things in your life today that are of highest priority. And let me put your mind at ease. I'm not going to make you share this with somebody else. You don't have to pass it down the row. You're not grading each other. If your wife is looking on to see that you're writing down her name, just tell her to mind her own business. This is... This is you, okay? The three things that are highest priority. I'll give you a few minutes to do that. Some of you are done. Some of you just got your card and you just started writing. Don't let me stop you. 
Some of you have been through similar exercises and know the frustration of doing this because they're not really priorities if they only exist on a piece of paper. If the current, the, the stream of life has a way of pulling you away from these things. And, and maybe you look back and you realize that for years you've been shortchanging yourself or your family or somehow dishonoring God or minimizing the impact that you know you could have in other people's lives because the tyranny of the urgent has somehow dominated the urgency of the important, of the priority. Here's what I'd like you to do. Again, you don't have to share this with anybody else, but I want you to glance through that list, the three highest priorities of your life. And I want you to reflect for just a minute on this question. What would you be prepared to sacrifice in order to attain those things? What would you be willing to give up? Let me press you a little bit harder because you know how difficult this is. I want you to look at the top priority on your list. Would you be prepared to give up what you've written as number three if it meant securing number one? Or what about number two and number three? Would you be prepared to give it up, to give all of it up, if it meant achieving what you have said is the number one priority in your life today? Those are the questions of the parables that we're going to look at today. Uh, Two little parables. These are mighty, mighty short, but mighty and powerful. Uh, There's not a lot of narrative involved, but they have some punch. And in order to get at them as As we've been doing with the parables, we'll do a little bit of background just to make sure we understand the world into which Jesus spoke these marvelous stories. And then we'll try and draw out some principles that help us live prioritized lives. Here's the first little bit of background. You see in the parable, Matthew 13, verse 44, this is where you can turn on your muted device and open it up to the Bible. Or if you're actually old school, I think it still exists in print, doesn't it? The print Bibles, you can open up one of those. Matthew 13, 44, you see there it says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Now there's actually, there's a whole story, there's a whole background there. Realize in Jesus' day, money was not a commodity, not the way that it is today. At the very best, it was a medium of exchange. It had no value on its own. It was only good for what you traded it for. So there were no banks where you invested your money. There were no lock boxes where you kept it safe. If you had valuable things, a certain amount of capital, whatever it might be, it could be precious jewels or precious minerals or metals. It could be family heirlooms. You would take it and you would hide it. Maybe you would hide it somewhere in your house. Or if you owned some land, you would go out there and you'd find a spot and you would dig a hole and you would bury it. Very common practice and it made sense in that world. But because of the unpredictability of life, because of disease and warfare and political upheaval, it wasn't all that uncommon for buried treasure to be left buried, unclaimed and unfound because the person who buried it disappeared. Kind of like squirrels in our yard who bury stuff everywhere. And I don't know what happened, whether they fell off a hydro line or met the wrong end of an automobile tire or something, but it's, it's forgotten. It's there. 
So in this parable, you have a man, a hired worker, a laborer or something, working away in a field, stumbles across somebody else's abandoned treasure. Now, he's not a man of means, because in order to buy the field, he has to liquidate everything that he has. But notice, it says, in his joy, in his joy, he went and he sold everything that he had. He basically had to bankrupt himself in order to buy the field. But he knew there was far more in the field than what he was paying for, and so he did it with joy. And the second parallel runs, uh, parable, it runs in parallel. It's very similar. It's about a pearl merchant. Now, pearls in the ancient world were even more valuable than they are today. In fact, they were a lot more valuable. To give you an example, we know that Cleopatra had a pearl, and it was valued at 25 million denarii. A denarii was a day's wage, the equivalent value of 25 million days of work, $4 billion. I mean, it just vastly outstrips any notion of what a pearl would be worth today, but it was common for pearls to have that kind of value. And so Jesus describes this man, a pearl merchant, somebody who understands what the good ones are and how worthwhile they are and how valuable, and he sees the one that beats them all. And to acquire it, he knows he's going to have to liquidate everything that he's got. His record collection, his vintage Corvette, his courtside tickets for game five of the Raptors. All of it. It's all got to go. And he does it with joy. He sells it because he knows that what he's getting is so much more valuable than what he's giving up, even though he's giving up everything. Now, obviously, there's a common thread that weaves its way through these two very short parables. Both of these men have, they have kind of an epiphany. The, the light goes on for them. And they are overwhelmed in the presence of something of value and of beauty. And so there's this moment of insight, a revelation, if you'd like. And they realize that in order to get it, there's no halfway. They can't just tiptoe their way into this. This is not an incremental decision. They are all in. They have to risk everything, and they do it. And thirdly, when they acquire it, they realize that the rewards really beggar all of the costs. Even though it costs them everything, it's worth far more than it costs. And the sacrifice that's mentioned is put in the context of such overwhelming riches that it's described only as one of joy. It doesn't say that they realized they had the sacrifice and they went off weeping and in tears and they came back and then when they were able to get what they'd hoped to get, Then there was joy. No, it says that the joy was there before. There was joy in the sacrifice. One more little note about interpretation, and then we'll kind of draw out some of the principles in these two little parables. Uh, You know, it's important, especially when parables, when parts of Scripture are just brief, really brief, like this, that you not hold them up there in isolation. The word of God, the whole counsel of God, hangs together. And one part of it helps us to understand the other part of it. The reason is that if you were just to take these two little verses, it kind of looks like you can buy your way in, doesn't it? The kingdom of God is like this, and if you can scrape together enough coin, you can buy yourself an admission. And that's clearly, I mean, that's not what Jesus was getting at. It's so opposite everything else that he said. But what is he getting at? He's certainly saying something about commitment, is he not? In fact, let's do this. We did it in the first service, but Edmund, I'm going to get your attention back there. 
Would you turn off these lights for me? There we go. Now, can you turn them back on again? What is it that caused the light? Is it Edmund? I mean, he made a choice. Or maybe he didn't. I told him to do it. But Is it the switch? I mean, there's something that was done. There was the mechanical movement of a switch. What is it that causes the light? In the end, it's neither Edmund or the switch. It's power. It's power that flows through the circuit to the light. The switch only receives the power. The person who throws it only makes the decision, but the light is caused by power. This is one of the most important distinctions, not just in theology, but in our own understanding of what's going on in our Christian lives. There is something God says that we must do in order to receive the kingdom of heaven. But there's nothing that you can do to earn it. The commitment that you make only ever just throws a switch that allows the current, the power of God to work in our lives. It doesn't cause it. It just allows it to work. That's the spiritual background of almost all of the parables. That start with that, the kingdom of God is like idea. Let's look at a few of the principles that are at work in this parable. If you want to grab the back page of your bulletin, we've, we've listed them there. Uh, we'll look at one that's kind of general and then three that are a little bit more specific. But here's the general one. There's a, there's a great book. It's kind of an old book now. It was called Give Up Your Small Ambitions. And what it says about the gospel is this. Both our admissions and our ambitions are too small. Until the gospel really gets a hold of us, we, we tend to lead these lives that are shrunken. Uh, a little bit atrophied. We don't understand just how awful and how wonderful the gospel is. Uh, I mean, think back. Maybe there was a time when you were just first dabbling with matters of faith. You're first sort of navigating some of the spiritual things in life. And you're thinking, listen, I might have to admit a little bit. I might have to give up a little bit. But maybe I'll get a little bit. A little bit more peace. A little bit more inspiration. A little bit more stability in my life. I'll get a little bit in return. The gospel wants nothing to do with that. The gospel pushes it way out to extremes. It pushes us in both directions. It says both your admissions and your ambitions are too small. The gospel is at the same time more terrible and more wonderful than we know. Because it doesn't say, hey, listen, just try a little harder. If you work hard, if you admit that you need a little bit more of God, if you work a little harder, he'll come in better and increasing ways into your life. Admit a little, get a little. No. The gospel says it will cost you everything. It all has to go. It's radical news. It all has to go. But it's also radical good news. It says beautiful words. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9, if you want to find this and circle this passage. It says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has ever conceived the incredible things that God has prepared for those who love him. You give up your small ambitions. The gospel is more terrible and more wonderful than anything you can possibly expect. There's, there's this great, great paragraph, one of many great paragraphs written by C.S. Lewis that describes it perfectly. This is what Lewis says. 
says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew these jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But then he starts knocking the house about in ways that hurt. They hurt abominably, and it doesn't seem to make sense. What is he up to? The explanation, Lewis says, is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. Why? Because he intends to come and live in it himself. It's easy to live out our faith in small bubbles. Just hoping God shows up a little bit at a time in those few moments when we need them. It's June, it's exam time. We could use a little bit more God. Just get us through this, Lord. But then it's summertime, and well, maybe we don't need you everywhere during the summer, Lord. But I I go to church, and, and I'll pray, and I'll get a little bit of inspiration and And it's kind of like seasoning. I'll season my life with a little bit of Jesus. We'll just sprinkle it on top of everything else. But what the parables are saying is, you know, I want everything. And I will turn you into a palace. This isn't just a little cosmetic renovation. I'm going to turn you into a castle. And I'm going to come and live there myself. That's the first, the kind of the general observation about these two parables. The gospel is both more awful and more wonderful than you might expect. Give up your small ambitions. God will ask more of you, and he will give more to you than you can possibly imagine. Let's look at three kind of specific things, and we'll move through these quickly. The first, this is going to sound a little bit out there, maybe a little philosophical. Christianity is a change of dimension and of essence. Sounds kind of woo, right? But what Jesus is trying to help us see in this parable is that being a Christian, it's, it's more than just spouting facts about Jesus. It actually means you take up citizenship in a new reality. He called that reality the kingdom of heaven. It's a change in dimension. And the movement into a new reality means that you are being translated out of this place of self sovereignty into a place now where God is sovereign. You're out from under your own rule and you come under the rule of a mighty and powerful God. That's what a kingdom is, isn't it? Kingdom is a place where the king's power and authority are at work. To be a Christian means you've changed dimensions. Colossians in chapter 1 puts it this way. You've been taken out of a kingdom of darkness and you've been transported into a kingdom of light. So being a a follower of Jesus isn't just someone who gets a little bit more biblical, who reads the Bible a little more frequently, who instead of coming to church twice a year is there every week. That's just a small increase in degree. Oh, look at them. They they seem to be a little more Christian right now. Look at her. She's, She's a little more committed. No, there has to be a change in authority. To be a Christian isn't simply adopting a moral code or a set of philosophies. It's to have God's ruling power coming into 
your life. And in doing that, unleashing the power of God within you. Apostle Paul, he was clear about this. Listen to a couple of things he says. 1 Corinthians 4.20, Paul says, The kingdom of God is not just a matter of mere talk. It's about power. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. It's the power of God at work in us, bringing salvation to those who believe. To be a Christian means you have God's ruling power at work in you. It's a force. It's a power. It's, it's not just a set of codes. It's not just a set of beliefs. If you're a Christian, you sense that there has been a change at the very core of who you are. Something has come from the outside and it has shaken the foundations of your life and has changed you on the inside. That's the gospel. The kingdom. Here's the second little observation. In order to make that change, Christianity requires that you give up everything. Wow. That's a tough message, right? We don't usually lead with that one. But we've alluded to it. The way to enter the kingdom of heaven is to give up everything. Now, what does that mean? I want to tread carefully here because I don't want to soft-pedal the gospel. But I also don't want to introduce a wave of forced poverty on the people of MCBC. But I think, I mean, here is the idea. You don't just get to nudge your way into this a little bit at a time. Jesus says, when you're ready to come into the kingdom of God, this is what it means to be a Christian, the follower of Jesus, you must be born again. And you don't do that halfway. It's a complete restart. You're born into a new reality, a new kingdom. Am I willing to give things up? What does that mean? It means nothing will be more important to me than Jesus. If it's a choice between this and Jesus, or that and Jesus, I choose Jesus. I will suffer the loss of anything if it means holding on to him. Let's say, for example, you're really struggling to identify publicly as a follower of Jesus. It's embarrassing. I mean, these days where Christianity is constantly being lambasted in the media, it's awkward. I know, you know, right? And if you would rather hold on to your image, your dignity, and your respect than Jesus, what you're really saying is that I choose that, not him. The same thing happens in issues of power or status or even sexuality. Lord, I'm willing, but if following Christ means I have to do the kind of crazy things I see other people doing with their money, or the kind of really heart-wrenching sacrifices they're making in their career, or the difficult choices that they're making in order to honor purity in their relationships, then forget it. Think of it this way. If you ever find yourself saying, I will obey if... I will obey God if. What's on the other side of the if is something you're not willing to sell. And you ask yourself, what is it that I'm serving? Have I ever really transferred kingship? Or am I still under all the old earthly kings? You have to be willing to give it up. There can't be conditions placed on your obedience. Here's the last little observation. What Jesus gives in response to that kind of surrender is unimaginable splendor. I mean, this is the good news. Both of those men in the parables who found treasure, one in the field, the other in the pearl, 
says that with joy they liquidated everything that they had. How is that even possible? Again, Paul talks about it. He says in Romans 8, you know what, I've suffered a lot. I've been beaten up. This is in verse 18. I've been stoned. I've lost my standing and my reputation. I was an academic elite. It's all gone. But I reckon, he says, I reckon that all the sufferings of this present time aren't even worth being compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. How deep is that verse? How deep is that? I think about it, Paul says. I reckon it. I'm counting it up. I'm listing it. I'm going over it in my mind. Why do you come to church? I hope you do come regularly. And one of the reasons we come is in order to reckon. To sing and celebrate and pray over and remind each other of all of the benefits that God has lavished on us. To speak the truth about the amazing things that he's said and the amazing things that he's done. You count it up. And you don't just do it here. Every morning you wake up and you're supposed to start by reckoning. Before you reach for this, do some reckoning. Put your hand regularly on the Word of God. Hold it, read it, reflect on it. Spend time in the presence of God and reflect on the beauty of what Jesus has done. I don't know, maybe it sounds like I'm trying to make us all into monks or nuns or something. But there's something really practical in this. In fact, there may be nothing more important than this when it comes to finding the, the strength and the, the lasting joy of the Christian life. I, I sort of went back and forth on whether to use these few lines because it's, it's old language, but it's the language of an artist. John Donne was an artist and his canvas was words. And people don't speak like this anymore, but I want you to listen to the words that he spoke in talking to God. He says to God, take me to you and imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, shall never be free, nor ever chased, except you ravish me. They don't talk like that much anymore. But you sort of get a feel for what he's saying. Until I'm ravished by you, everything else will seduce me away. I'll never be chaste unless you ravish me. I'll never be impervious to the seductions of, of finance and sexuality and status unless I'm ravished by you. And somebody says, I, I don't even know how to begin to do this. My heart just feels dry, empty most of the time. I'll tell you how to begin. You start by repenting but what I, of what I think is the main problem in our lives, and it's not our behavior. The main problem is not that we're breaking this rule or that rule. The main problem is the lack of room we have for God in our lives. Repent of the fact that we're not ravished by him. You could do it the other way. I mean, you could sit down and say, Lord, I'm a bad person. I repent because I broke this rule and that rule, all, all my secret little sins. I repent of this and that. I hate my parents and, and I don't go to church like I should and I keep falling into temptation. I repent. And I'm not saying that any of those things are fine. Your behavior matters. But I'm saying that, that it, sometimes it just leaves you feeling worse. Start by saying this, Lord, Lord, in light of everything that you have done, I repent that I am not overwhelmed by you and the love that you have. I'm not ravished 
by you. The real challenge of these two parables, I think, is to our priorities. Especially those ones that keep us hard-hearted and walled off from God. It challenges our accounting. What's valuable? What's expensive? What's worth our devotion? Is something that's $500, is that expensive? You say, well, I don't know. Well, if I tell you it's a screwdriver, you say, yeah, that's really expensive. What if I tell you it's a Porsche? And any one of you in this room, you might not have two cents to rub together, but you'd say, yeah, give me an hour, I'll be back. I'll find it somehow, $500 for a Porsche. Is something expensive or not? It depends on what it is. This will cost you everything. Everything you have. Is it expensive? Not a bit. You give up nothing when you give up everything because you gain the whole world. For he is no fool, the great words of Jim Elliot, who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. It's enough for today. Let's pray. God, these, these words, uh, we know they were probably challenging when Jesus first spoke them. They're still challenging today. For some of us, our heads are still swimming. What, what did you mean? Lord, what are you asking of me? What are the tangible changes or choices that I need to make? And God, I pray for each of us that that you would slow us down for just a minute and allow us in this place to experience the simple wonder of being ravished by you. Of being so overwhelmed, so captivated by your beauty, by the significance of what you've done, by the promise of what you will do. Overwhelm us so completely that any choice, any decision we might make, any sacrifice we might choose would just feel so small in comparison to the grandeur of who you are. In these quiet moments, God, be at work in our lives and let the change come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.